Welcome to this episode of Disrupt, a podcast of the Cedarville University Center for Pharmacy Innovation. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Dr. Kyle McCormick, president of Blueberry Pharmacy. In this episode, we will be talking about medication pricing, novel financial models for community pharmacies, and how these new approaches enhance patient care. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I'm excited to have with us today, Dr. Kyle McCormick. Uh, we've got, a, uh, I think, a fantastic uh, conversation about new ways community pharmacies are not only caring for their communities, but providing it in a financially uh, prudent way. So, uh, Kyle, we appreciate you coming on to the podcast today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, and thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be on here and a uh, big fan of the work of Cedarville University. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to the discussion today. Yeah, as are we. All right, well, I want to turn this over to you uh, right from the get-go and just give you uh, free reign to tell us a little bit of your story and background. Yeah, so I, I graduated 2014 from the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy, stayed on to do a one-year one residency, PGY1, in community pharmacy. It was pretty unique. Um, it was actually the first year for that program, and it was with Gaddy Pharmacy, an independent, independent pharmacy out of Indiana, Pennsylvania, along with Pitt. And it was kind of like a split community residency. Half my time I was spent spending designing a clinical documentation system, a web-based clinical documentation system for a startup. And then the other half um, was spent providing patient care at Gaddy Pharmacy. And I don't know why I split it in half, because then there was the other half that was uh, <laughs> the, the teaching and the work and the, the research with the School of Pharmacy. And then there was the other half that was in the practice. <laughs> so there was a lot going on during uh, community residency, as everybody can imagine. But um, so then after that residency, I stayed on with Gaddy Pharmacy and led the, uh, was the director of clinical programs there. Um, so oversaw the next uh, couple years residents and um, kind of led some of the initiatives, uh, clinical initiatives of the pharmacy, as well as dispensing and all of that. And then 2020, um, I actually went off and started my own pharmacy here in Pittsburgh uh, called Blueberry Pharmacy. And I think that's probably what brings us to today's conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know that one of the things that you're very passionate about is is helping students and other pharmacists understand today's drug distribution system, particularly how payment is flowing through that. So we all know we have a number of players in that space, right? It includes manufacturers, wholesalers, the pharmacies themselves. We also have PBMs, which are pharmacy benefits managers, and sometimes others too. Uh, so I'm going to put you on the spot. This may be a bit of a Herculean task here, but could you take a few moments to describe the current model within um, pharmacies? How do all of these different pieces and parts play together? Yeah, and and I really don't know the system that well because I'm actually outside of the system, so I, I probably can't even describe it as well as somebody in the system can. But um you know, from my years as an independent pharmacy, a pharmacist in, in a traditional model, uh, you know, kind of what happens is you submit, you have your patient, your, your prescriber pharmacy, so patient walks in with a prescription. That is uh, then submitted to, um, that claim is submitted to a switch, which um, would be like um, 
you know, MD on or somebody like that. And it, then there's uh, that that is then translated into whether or not it's a you know it goes up against the formulary of a PBM, and the PBM is a, transmits back through the switch of yes, it's approved. Here's how much we're going to reimburse the pharmacy. Um, so that the PBM, their stated goal is, if anybody's unaware, pharmacy benefit manager is what the definition of a PBM is, and kind of their stated goal is to lower costs and help navigate care or navigate you know formularies and whatnot for a payer so um and so they're kind of contracted entities to administer the pharmacy benefit and so you know in, in doing so they should be kind of negotiating prices down they should be creating a network of participants of pharmacies that are part of a network uh, um, that patients can use for that particular plan you know they should be helping uh, with rebates, um, if rebates are part of the system or need to be part of the system, they're the ones negotiating those rebates and, and supposedly using those rebates to lower the overall cost of care. Um, you know, they're, they're managing the formulary, so deciding whether or not some drug is covered or not uh, based on clinical evaluation and dollar evaluation, things like that. Those are all stated goals of the, the PBM, but as you know, probably we'll get into a little bit today, they're not provide a lot of PBMs, especially the ones that aren't transparent PBMs, aren't really serving all those rules well, um, and not always with the with the best interest of the payer who is contracting with it, who's who's hiring them to do so, and especially not always with the best interest of the patient in mind. So yeah, you, so you have that PBM who's receiving that claim and saying yes or no, it's covered based on a number of things, you know, the formula that they put together, you know, what rebates are involved. Know um, what the copay and the tier structure is, um, deductibles, all that stuff. Uh, and so then um, you've got your um, you've got your manufacturers. You you, you said uh, who's manufacturing the drug, who works with the PBM for rebates, things like that. You've got your wholesaler, who is primarily working with the pharmacy. Um, and then the other piece that we didn't uh, mention yet would be the PSAO. Pharmacy Services Administrative Organization, something like that. Um, they are the ones that pharmacies work with to navigate contracts with PBMs. Um, so if I'm a pharmacy and I want to sign, you know, easily sign a number of contracts with PBMs, I can sign up with a PSAO and not have to go direct with all the different PBMs. Now you'll notice there's a trend in the industry where pharmacies are mainly going direct with a lot of the PBMs just because you can you're not having to send assign preferred contracts where you basically accept a loss up front in order to get a whole bunch of lives, things like that. So um, some some pharmacies aren't even using PSAOs anymore, but PSAOs are kind of the middle entity between PBM and pharmacy uh, to help navigate those contracts. Uh, so you got the PSAO wholesaler. Uh, that, that, those are some of the big players in the in the payments industry. Yeah, I think you've done a great job painting this picture that it's a it's a tangled web, isn't it? I mean, it's unfortunately a, a far cry from getting drug to a patient. There's a lot of intermediary steps that happen, especially related to the financial model of today's uh, today's system. So, with that being the case, 
what kind of costs are typically submitted to a PBM by a community pharmacy? Essentially, what's the breakdown of these charges? Because this is one of the ways in which community pharmacies stay financially solvent, right? They, they have to have mm-hmm. some type of financial remuneration for the drugs they dispense. So what are those charges? How does it look? Yeah, so there, there, whenever uh, a claim is submitted to a PBM, pharmacies are submitting what's called a usual and customary. Um, that is a charge that they've put together. Each pharmacy can create their own usual and customary. And a lot of pharmacies have, there's actually, we can get into it, the incentive to inflate the usual and customary because you know you're not going to get paid, majority of the time you're not going to get paid the full amount that you ask from insurance companies. And so if you can even get a percentage of it, well, 50% of $100 is better than 50% of $10. So you're you're incentivized to, well, say, let's submit for $100. And if we end up getting 50% from a uh, PBM, then that's you know $50 instead of $5. So the incentives there is to, to inflate the usual and customary. And the, well, the way that's typically done is usually um, in the calculations of creating a usual and customary, a lot of pharmacies use what's called an average wholesale price of a drug. Average wholesale price is set by the manufacturer. So one product, one NDC of bupropion may have a different ND, um, different AWP than you know uh, another brand. So which is, it gets even weirder whenever you involve relabelers, which is another you know entity that we didn't discuss, but you know it could literally be the same drug just labeled by a different company and have a different AWP. Absolutely. <laughs> wow. And so, so the, that AWP is an artificially inflated number just to give you a sense of how inflated that is. Um, there's a drug that we dispense uh, often called Tecfidera. It's, that's the brand name for it for patients with multiple sclerosis, generic name dimethyl fumarate. AWP on that, I don't know for sure, but I, I imagine it's right around $2,000, $3,000, something like that, maybe even higher. Um, but our acquisition cost on is $21. Um, and so that's the disconnect between AWP and actual acquisition costs, or AAC. Um, and so whenever you're using that AWP to, to deter, help calculate out your usual and customary, you get high artificially inflated usual and customary numbers that you're submitting to insurance plans. Now there are some there are some pharmacies, credit to them, that that don't play in that game and do a lot more like a cost plus submission to usual and customary. Um, but most pharmacies use artificially inflated AWPs to cr- create that usual and customary. Okay. Yeah, that's super helpful. So you already mentioned this a little bit, but how do these coupon cards impact this reimbursement model? Like where do they come into all of this? Yeah, and that's a great segue because they kind of came to be um, because of you know, this idea that plans write in their contracts that they have to be specifically Medicare is one of the, the big ones. They have to be the lowest payer. You're the lowest. You, you can't charge another person less than what you're charging specifically Medicare, right? And so if, uh, back to the $100 example, if, if that's your usual and customary and you're billing Medicare $100, you can't then offer a cap paying patient ten dollars that same drug and so otherwise you'd be you know charging medicare 10x the price of what you're charging your cash paying and since you know that's breach of contracts kind of against the law almost uh you're, you're kind of um, breaking the rules there so coupon cards came to into existence in that 
know, they still work on the same network as insurance. Basically, they still have PBMs on the back end. Um, but what you can do as a pharmacy is you can submit to the coupon company, which is a PBM, and they'll spit back. You know, yes, you sent the usual customary of hundred dollars, but contracted rate here is just ten dollars. So that's one way to offer cash-paying patients. Um, you know reasonable prices but still keep your usual and customary inflated um and so you know uh we've now become industries kind of kind of almost become dependent and actually since some coupon prices often coupon prices are less than copays now we have so much business and volume that's actually going outside of the you know the um traditional model uh but pbms are still what's so frustrating is those are created kind of for uninsured patients to get affordable prices for medications, coupon cards. And so you have this way for PBMs to still be involved and get, make money off of uninsured patients. And by, by nature, uninsured patients are outside of the system. And somehow insurance and PBMs have still found a way to make money on completely uninsured patients. It's, it's, brilliant. it's a brilliant business model, but it's just ridiculous that that needs to be how it works. And so how that um, you know, I like to think uh, back and do like a mind, uh, like an experiment, like a mental experiment of what would have happened had coupon cards never come to existence. Because a lot of people say, oh, but we need coupon cards. That's the only way for patients to get affordable medications. I actually argue the opposite. I say, you know, if we had never created coupon cards, um, there would have been a lot more market competition on around that usual and customary number. And we wouldn't have artificially inflated usual and customaries because say, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, um, if uninsured patients goes into a pharmacy and says, you know, that'll be $100 for that medication, and they go to the next pharmacy, they're like, well, I'll do it for 90 And you just keep having that negotiate that, that market force that keeps lowering and lowering to where, um, you know, you wouldn't have these artificially inflated usual customaries anymore. Um, and so I actually think, you know, the, the coupon companies of the world say we've saved so much money. Uh, and it's like, you've saved, I could do that today. I often joke, I think it's uh, one of the big coupon. I won't mention any brands, but they, they tout how they've saved Americans $2 billion. Uh, but if you think that's off of a fake number, so I could do the same thing today. I could make a list price on one of medic- my medications, $3 billion, make a coupon that takes $2 billion to, Nine hundred ninety-nine million nine hundred ninety-nine thousand nine hundred ninety dollars off of it, and save somebody two point nine billion dollars today. <laughs> like, like that's all. That's all that they're claiming to do is take fake numbers and lower them. And so it's not actually saving people money. Um, but yeah, there's just these perverse incentives whenever coupons. That not to mention they also charge a fee to the to the pharmacy that's submitting it. So you've got uh, you know chain pharmacy that's submitting a coupon often those coupon fees are five to seven dollars per per transmission so if you're if you have a coupon that's for ten dollars and then pharmacy has to pay five to seven dollars back to pbm uh that's a link to that coupon then that pharmacy is only netting you know five five ish dollars five three to three to five dollars on that and then the drug costs are a dollar and so net gross profit gross is uh two dollars so how do you how do you sustain in that in that model which is why you see a lot of pharmacies actually back independents have been knowing this for a while they say we just don't accept coupons but even chains like kroger was one of the biggest ones recently to 
to break away. And they've since renegotiated those terms to be more favorable for Kroger. But a lot of pharmacies have been, this is ridiculous. We're, we're, we're not making money in this, in this scenario. Well, I think that's a perfect segue into my next question. But for, for listeners who are thinking, man, this is way too heady for me, stick with us, okay? There's a point for us discussing the complexity of the current system, all right? So, um, Kyle, if you could elaborate just a bit more, and you just went there, on how do these current practices, this current model, how does that impact the financial stability of a pharmacy today? Yeah, Um and there's definitely successful pharmacies out there. So, I, you know, I'm going to paint like a grim picture, but there's definitely pharmacies that are still profitable, that are still doing well within the current system. But the the, the incentives that I saw or the, what was happening in the marketplace that led me to think, well, there, there has to be a better way were a couple. Um, so first you have lower reimbursement. Every year that I've been in pharmacy, I graduated in 2014, but I you know, kind of started working in a pharmacy back 2009. So I've been in pharmacy now 13 years. And every year, and I've always been independent, so I always had a close connection to owners. And every year, owners talk about how reimbursement has fallen. So if some, something happens for 14 years in a row, you know, reimbursement has to be pretty low by now, right? <laughs> and it is. Uh, you know, I even think back to whenever you know, we were doing flu shots my you know, first year I started doing flu shots we were making pretty good margin now I think it's like some plans only pay eight dollars for a flu shot um, so reimbursement has has fallen and will continue to fall um, because the PBM's incentive isn't to pay pharmacy and more you know they, they also are a business they have to make money so one way for them to make more money is to decrease reimbursement out um, and so reimbursement has fallen at the same time, fees have gone up. So DIR fees, GER fees, BER fees. And if you're not familiar with those terms, they're just fees that are assessed by PBMs to the pharmacy. They're written in the contract. So a lot of times we say, oh, we didn't, we didn't know about them, but they are in the contract. The language is there. The pharmacies do know about them, but they're retroactive. So that's the hard part is they're not point whenever you submit a claim, you know, unless you have it programmed in, it's not something you know is going to happen. Um, so it's uh, up to a couple months later. So fees have gone up. Uh, I think NCPA had an analysis that they, like for example, DIR fees had gone up 91,000% over about the last eight years, I believe. Um, so fees have gone up, uh, reimbursement's gone down. Um, we've got patient responsibility for drug costs has actually gone up as well. So if you think about, one great thing about the Affordable Care Act is that it actually cr created the, the market for a lot of high deductible plans. And, you know, patients tend to not like them, but it actually does increase transparency of what drugs cost and what healthcare costs are. So if a patient's now seeing those higher costs up front until they have the, the, their deductible met, they're being a lot more conscience, uh, conscious. Uh, but also what that does is it increases their responsibility on the, on the front end. And so whenever, you know, we have patients walking in or, or you know, they're, they're faced with a a high deductible plan and they have $100 um, bupropion and we know it only costs us you know, $5, um, you know, patients are, are kind of shopping around for that. So, um, and then the other, th the other big thing is the deflationary aspect of, um, or quality of generic drugs. What I mean by that is, yes, we know brand name drugs go up in costs every single January. But actually, over time, generic drugs tend to fall in cost. Now, that's not, they'll never fall forever. That's impossible. But they, 
over time, especially right after launch, they, they tend to, to keep going down. And so all these trends, if we have pharmacies being reimbursed less, but patients having to pay more, but the, the dr- price of drugs going down over time, which is like, why don't we make a model where we just sell direct to patients at fair and transparent prices? Uh, and I think back to a patient at Gaddy Pharmacy um, that I, it was a Medicare patient, generic Vesicare. And her copay through Medicare, because she was in the deductible phase, was $300 a month. Um, and that would only be during while she was in the duct- deductible phase, so maybe one, two months. But still, I had the bottle of Vesicillofenacin in front of me, and I could see on the sticker that it only cost us $5. I said, why, like, why is this a thing? Like, why can't I just, why can't I live in a world where I could say, don't pay $300? And I, I, this is what we did, because we're an independent pharmacy, but it was like, why do we even have this model exist? Like where I can't just charge her $15. I'd make a nice $10 profit or 25, whatever it is, whatever you want your margin to be. It's still a lot better for the patient than $300. Um, And so that patient always sticks in my mind as kind of like the one that really gave me the idea to do the model of just charging fair and transparent prices to patients because it just made so much more sense. Yeah, and I think that's the the whole story of Blueberry Pharmacy from what I understand. So it is, it seems to me, completely different from what the system that you've just described, right? This complex, Mm -hmm. convoluted system of drug reimbursement and payment. Um, But before we dive into the specifics, tell us a little bit more about how Blueberry Pharmacy got started. You you told us this patient story. What happened Mm -hmm. after that? How did you get to where you are today with your pharmacy? Yeah, luckily I've had a lot of great mentors along the way, and one of the, the closest and, and best mentors has been um, my previous boss, um, the owner of Gaddy Pharmacy, um, Stephanie Smith Cooney. She she really uh, kind of let me do whatever I wanted at, at Gaddy Pharmacy, so to explore different things, um, experiment with things. You know, leading the clinical programs got you know that, some experience and, and networked with a bunch of other pharmacists and. And so, you know, even at Gaddy Pharmacy, we actually piloted uh, a membership model um, there where we would offer patients reduced prices if they're members of the Gaddy Gold uh, program. And so it was kind of, kind of like a nice little test bed for, is this something that could actually work? Um, and then, you know, the cost plus um, model, just, I don't know when I really, I'm not really sure the, I'm sure I saw something somewhere. Uh, the, the one thing that I think of is there's a grocery store, I forget the name of it, but they're a cost plus grocery store. And I was just always intrigued by that model where, you know, you mark up something by the same amounts. Um, and in pharmacies particularly, it, it makes a ton of sense. You know, it's not that lisinopril is inherently more more different or, or should be worth more than dimethyl fumarate, right? Um, because our services, our clinical knowledge, our, our time, effort, counting, um, Actually, you know, it takes less time to count dimethyl because you keep it in the stock bottle, right? Uh, it takes uh, less, you know, um, it takes less w- monitoring than warfarin. Uh, you know, it's it's the idea that it, we do we, we perform the same service for everything that we dispense, and we should be paid for that service versus being in the industry of buying low and selling high like we've done for for decades. Um, and so that's really the inspiration behind it. And I'm not sure where that came from, but um, that, that's kind of the origin of the cost plus uh, 
concept. The membership model piece, um, there are several inspirations there. I had seen several pharmacies experimenting with membership, and you know, that was around the, you know, at the time I was an Amazon Prime member, so I was fascinated with their memberships. Um, and, and the one pharmacy out of New York that was kind of served as an inspiration too, like I said, we, we piloted this at Gaddy Pharmacy, but there's a pharmacy um, out of New York called Cedra, C-E-D-R-A Pharmacy. And they actually have a very luxurious membership model. I've always wanted to talk. I should I should just cold call them someday. But I think it's like something crazy, like $5,000 a year or something like that to be a member of their pharmacy. And, you know, you get some of the perks are like limo rides to your doctor's office and um, a nurse will accompany you to your doctor's appointments and things like that. I was like, that's pretty cool for a pharmacy to like go next level with the service. And so, you know, um, and then there was uh, um, out of Memphis, Tennessee, there's uh, Good Shepherd Pharmacy, which is a membership only pharmacy. That one, you know, it already, I had always kind of like kept my eye on as um, and, and served as kind of like an inspiration for our membership um, component. Where, you know, there it was, you know, $50 a month. And then it just came along with a certain number of medications for free. Um, so th- there were definitely different pieces that I just kind of all put together. And um, that's how Blueberry Pharmacy was formed. Great. So how do you describe this membership-based cost plus model to your patients? Uh, how do you pitch this to them? How do, how do you make it understandable for them? Yeah, it's, and that's evolved over time too. A lot of times early on, I wanted to like go get heavy into the you know, the value of cost plus and how we come up with our prices. And what I learned is patients could care less. They just want another price (laughs) (laughs) or or they just want to experience the service. And then they're like, I don't care what the price is. Like it's a little less, like it's more valuable to people in the industry. I think for the most part to understand the the concepts behind it. But a lot of times patients care about the the price and quality of service. um, And that's what sells it. Um, but the way I do explain it to some patients that are a little bit more inquisitive, it's like a lot of times we get the question, well, how are you able to do this? And my answer has evolved over time, but um, it's also evolved in step with kind of how I view the philosophy of the pharmacy. So uh, Robert Popovian, um, former Pfizer um, uh, pharmacist, he, I feel like he, he kind of said something on a podcast once it really clicked with me and this is i had already opened blueberry pharmacy but brought up the concept of these products aren't even fundamentally insurable um and, and really they should be separated from the the insurance market and just create a open transparent market for them and that really stuck with me and i thought about it a lot more so now a lot to, a lot of times i explain it by comparing and tra- contrasting with other insurances so specifically car insurance so with car insurance we have uh, you know, we buy a car insurance not to cover our gas or our oil changes or the small dents and scratches. We buy it in case we're in an accident. We buy it for the high cost unknown events. And that is the def- definition of why we buy insurance, high cost unknown things. And so comparing that with generic drug marketplace, not even generic, we should probably more call it like the low cost prescription, you know, Probably some drugs are insurable and some aren't. I, I will let, leave that to an actuary to decide. But um, for, I like to say, you know, generic Crestor, um, Resuvastatin, where it's $3.79 for a 90-count bottle, and I will have to take it for the rest of my life. Um, you know, that's low cost, very predictable, complete opposite of 
what we should buy insurance for. And so really we shouldn't expect insurance to ever cover Crestor because we actually have lower costs when we just buy it direct because whenever we involve a PBM, they charge an administrative fee and there's no way that they can drive, if their stated goal is to drive down costs, they really can't drive down $3.79 any further. Like that's pretty low already. And so there's really no role for for PBMs to be involved there and, and really for insurance. And so, you know, I often compare in, in answering that question, I often say, well, you know, we don't buy insurance for oil changes because, you know, we know if we bought insurance, like if, if an insurance, if a car insurance company actually offered insurance for oil changes, they would tell us, you know, you're only allowed to do it two to three times a year. You've got to do it at this location. You know, only semi-synthetic is the max that you can get covered. Uh, and, and, you know, um, there, there's still a, a $20 copay every time you get your oil changed. And it's, it sounds a lot like generic drugs, right? You know, if, if we include it as part of insurance, you know, you can only get it filled, you know, on this Crestor that you're probably not going to abuse. You can only get it filled you know, on day 86 out of 90, or you've got to use this mail order pharmacy to get it filled, or you've got to, and not to mention, there's still a $10 copay on it every single time. And it's like, well, oh, so it looks a lot, it looks familiar to people whenever they realize, oh, you know, these really aren't insurable products. Once we see how low cost they are, patients are like, oh, it just makes a lot of sense to just buy those directly through you. So that's what we try to drive home for patients. Okay, that's super helpful information. Appreciate that. Um, at the end of every pharmacy process is what matters most, and that is the patient. I think you just got to that. Um, even though we're talking pricing, at the end of the day, it's not about keeping a pharmacy business solvent, but how do we improve the health of the patients that are around us? So as I was uh, learning more about Blueberry Pharmacy, I was really struck by some of your organization's core commitments of community, transparency, and sustainability. So how do these drive you? at Blueberry Pharmacy in the day-to-day decisions in your strategic direction? Why are community transparency and sustainability so important? Yeah, um, I think at the core is transparency. Um, You know, the more transparent we are with not just prices, but the quality, like what we're doing from a care standpoint and all that, um, it builds trust. Um, And I think that's what we kind of have lost as a profession um, with the way we price things. it's in the news pharmacy is always associated with cost it's not associated with you know quality and necessarily um and it's like how how expensive prescription drugs are and all that it's because you know if a patient tech back to the tech for example if patients realize that a pharmacy is only paying 21 dollars for it and their copay is 500 or or if an employer sees oh we charge two thousand dollars for it you know if they actually saw the transparency there and realized how much they were being ripped off. You lose a lot of trust overnight. Uh, and so with transparency, we hope that that brings a lot of trust and it already has, you know, it's formed a lot of relationships with doctor's offices. So, you know, we have strong relationships with direct primary care because they've realized that, Oh, here's a pharmacy that's transparently pricing medications for patients. Um, and, and so you know, it's really brought some of that community a- aspects into it whenever it comes to, you know, relationships with other providers. Um, also, I do believe that care is local. Um, and so to the community standpoint, that's one of the core philosophies. I'm not ever really afraid of losing out to a mail order pharmacy because you know, one of the big name cost plus pharmacies that just launched, um, 
yes, they offer Z packs, but you've got to wait five to seven days for that Z pack, you know, um, not quality care. And we can actually do it for basically the same price. Um, and yes, we can even deliver it to your door if you need, if, if you need that amount of convenience. So care is local. So I think the, the most important thing about a community pharmacy is that it is located in the community in which it serves. So, um, you know, what, we, whatever we do, the community impacts us. They help us be sustainable. So we have to be helpful to the community too. And then sustainability, you know, um, that's one that we really have to build on as a pharmacy. So we've done different things. We, we offer um, cardboard box packaging instead of vials, plastic vials. It's a company called Parcel Health. That's probably one of our big in, biggest initiatives there is, you know, offering more sustainable packaging, um, trying to do things to cut down, you know, wastes, uh, different things like that. Uh, but even the sustainability of pharmacy, you know, there's different ways to interpret sustainability. But one way we think is like the sustainability and like helping to hopefully create kind of a next generation pharmacy in that the way we price drugs, the way we, um, you know, provide service, the way we do memberships, things like that, uh, hopefully makes a thriving uh, future for, for pharmacy as an industry. Yeah, that's great. I'm curious, aside from offering these prescription medications at lower costs directly to patients, what are some of the other services that Blueberry Pharmacy provides to the community or to your patients? Yeah, a lot of it, um, probably the best uh, example. So we offer clinical consults. We offer help with manufacturer assistance uh, programs, things like that. But a lot of what we do is through our membership. So um, a traditional model, you do a lot of fee-for-service things. So like MTM, CMRs, TIPS, it's all fee-for-service and you're, you're dictated when and where that should be done. In a membership-based pharmacy, our incentive to provide service to patients is to make them continue being members, uh, right? So our drive for providing great patient care is actually we don't want to lose a member. Um, we, want, we want to keep patients coming back not only f- to fill things, but mainly to, you know, to keep on, um, as, as members. So, so we, we do a lot of those services, um, MTM, CMRs, you know, answering questions about, you know, patients, medications, um, blood pressures, things like that, but, but more, not so much as a, a fee for service, but more as a, this is just, you know, part of being a part of the blueberry experience. Um, we also do more, you know, set services or, or like this defined services with our relationships with direct primary care. So we do chart reviews for them. We have access to their EHR. We do chart reviews for them. We help their patients access their medications, regardless of what pharmacy they're using. They, you know, their most patients aren't using blueberry pharmacy. We just help um, manage their med- patients' medications, answer their questions, um, do consults with the doctors for that. Um, so that's, that's, I guess, more defined services. Uh, toying around with, you know, vaccines, we've some, done some vaccines in the past. It's just a little tricky because a lot of those require some level of contracting. And so it's more of like figuring out where that fits. We definitely believe it fits in the community pharmacy, but, you know, do we want to sign a, uh, a contract? One of our, our core philosophy is like not being involved with PBM. So, so it's just like a little tricky there. So that's why we don't really do vaccines. We've done some in the past, but we right now we aren't doing any vaccines, but definitely something that we view fits. And then and we did have a relationship with the lab. Um, during COVID, they were doing a lot of COVID testing in our in our pharmacy. They've since moved out. So I think there's a rule for, for clinical testing and things like that. 
just ma mainly figuring out how that works. And our core focus right now is helping patients get access to fair and transparently priced medications. So once we prove that out, once we figure out how that works and then adding in those different services um, will be our next goal. Great. I'm, I'm curious. It seems that, and I think I can state this as a fact without being too controversial, there's angst with many community pharmacists these days about working conditions, right? Um, and, and so I'd love to hear a little bit, what about the pharmacist and other staff that work at Blueberry Pharmacy? What is their experience? What do they think about this completely different model toward community pharmacy? Yeah, uh, it's, it's a, uh, I love the, I love the concept of being paid for the service, right? Um, which is just, you know, that's the core idea of cost plus is that we are being paid for the service of dispensing prescriptions. I know that that sometimes can be controversial too, because a lot of people want to move away from product and more to, to clinical services, but I actually view dispensing as one of the most important clinical services. It's a check-in every single month or every three months with a patient on their medication. Um, and so, yeah, so what, why I bring that up in that question is whenever you're being properly reimbursed and whenever the incentives are aligned to uh, being paid for service, it actually makes you provide better service and it actually facilitates an environment where that service can be provided. So if I'm only being, if I'm losing money on a brand name medication, I have to then fill, you know, 10 more prescriptions just to make up for that loss. And then, then I'm in this hamster wheel of like just hitting volume and, and numbers and all that stuff. Whereas if I'm making consistent margin on every single prescription, I can take time on every single prescription to, to, to properly counsel and educate and do other things too. Um, so that's one of the beauty of the cost plus model and being paid for service. But also it's just, you know, so with the relationships to direct primary care with patients' levels of trust uh, and coming to us, things like that, you feel, and, and also saving people money, like actual savings is a lot of fun too. Like we hear a lot of fun stories. So it's, it's very um, professionally um, rewarding. And so I think that that resonates a lot with, um, and, and just to give you an idea of staff. So we have um, one part-time pharmacist. He does a lot of our, our marketing, um, but he usually is in about one day a week to, to dispense. And we have mainly student pharmacists. So um, every five weeks we have new students uh, from really any school pharmacy, but um, primarily since we're located in Pittsburgh, Pitt and Duquesne. And uh, so they, do APPEs and they, they rotate through. And one of the biggest compliments, but also maybe best answer to your question, um, was from a student who was thinking of hospital. And um, at the end of his rotation, I, you know, we were doing feedback and reflecting and he's like, you know, I would really consider community pharmacy if, if they all looked like this. Um, and so that, to answer your question, I, I really feel like whenever the care and the, 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 the quality is what's incentivized and the service is what's incentivized. It's a lot more rewarding and it opens up the opportunity for better care and also a lot more professional, you know, involvement and reward from it. Yeah, I love that. And it, um, my hope is we can adopt more uh, models like this. Uh, it's, it's exciting. Yeah, it's, it's, so, so the current, like uh, it's, it's always fun because um, students, like the one student we have right now, he, he's like, okay, so next year I'm opening up the next Blueberry Pharmacy. <laughs> and then you know, the other student's like, I want to partner with my, my friend and create grape, grape pharmacy. And then 
one one somebody wants to create strawberry pharmacy i'm like i don't <laughs> you you go do it like i i'm happy you know <laughs> uh no it's fun to see the excitement around the model for sure yeah absolutely um, so you had alluded to this earlier, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and name it. So most people are probably familiar with Mark Cuban's cost plus drug company, mostly because it's gotten a lot of press, right? Um, so uh, let me ask you this question. How would you say blueberry pharmacy is different and dare I say better than cost plus drug company? Yeah. Um, it hurt whenever it first launched <laughs> because, um, as a backstory, we had actually talked to the owner or the CEO of it over a year ago. Um, at the time, they were just going to be manufacturing drug, and we thought, you know, this is a great opportunity to collaborate. They're manufacturing in a transparent way, pricing um, in a uh, transparent way, selling it to pharmacies, and we're a pharmacy that's selling drugs in a transparent way. So we we would buy their drugs, sell it, you know. So we actually had a, an extensive conversation where we you know, shared a business model, all that stuff. So fast forward, whenever they opened up their own pharmacy, even with a cost plus three, which is our member margin, it was like, ah, maybe maybe we told them a little too much. <laughs> um, so, but anyhow, it's actually been great in that like um, it's helped spur the model along. Um, you know, nothing we could have done as a small pharmacy in northern Pittsburgh could have gotten and grown as quickly as you know mark cuban's name being attached to it right so so if anything i've learned that it's really helped spur the growth of the model and excitement around the model and patients understanding of pricing and uh bringing transparency to market so all those aspects aspects are really good um the one thing that makes me not too concerned and to answer your question um is that we've never transferred to mark cuban pharmacy we've only transferred from our cuban pharmacy and every single time it's been that level of service they don't get to talk to a pharmacist um the one patient shared a story that whenever she called uh she was it rang and rang and rang and eventually they got she got an answer and it was like we're too busy right now can you call back later <laughs> like the, like the onus was on the patient to call back but like you know we'll call you back whenever we get a second it was like just call back. So the patient was like, I, I can't just keep calling, hoping that somebody will answer my questions. Like I need, <laughs> so she transferred. And, and then another patient, um, they're waiting on their oral vancomycin. So, um, not something you'd want to have to wait for, but she had already been waiting for two weeks. <laughs> and so she called us and we got it to her next day. Um, you know, uh, back to the idea of care being local. I never see a mail or it never, this is where I'll get into the kind of the philosophies here of what the future of pharmacy in my eyes look like. Um, brand, especially high dollar items, those are insurable. Generic drugs, low cost, predictable, uninsurable. I actually view mail order makes a lot more sense in the ins in the insurable high dollar item because it makes a lot more sense for a rare drug to be sent to a patient with a rare disease state and a high dollar item be stored in a big facility and just sent out to specifically the person that needs it across the country than it does for amlodipine to take up, you know, to be in Texas or I think in Mark Cuban's case, Washington, the state of Washington and be mailed um, all the way across the country to Pittsburgh because a bottle of amlodipine a thousand count only costs us like six bucks. 
So why wouldn't I just have that on my shelf here in Pittsburgh? And, you know, the majority of people across the country take amlodipine. Most people don't take, you know, name, name a rare drug. Um, And so it makes a lot more sense for those to be locally stored. And especially from a, uh, from a redundancy of healthcare standpoint, it makes a lot more sense for us to have, you know, a bunch of community pharmacies all around the country in case of natural disaster or just even access. And so, that's why I don't think mail order ever wins out. The value propositions of mail order right now are, or historically, are cost. So you typically might be able to go to a Mark Cuban of the world and get lower prices than you could otherwise. And then the other would be convenience. So convenience um, of it just showing up at your door. Con- convenience can already be achieved locally. I can already do next day delivery, same day delivery. Uh, and then cost has been something that until Blueberry Pharmacy really wasn't you know a thing where you could get affordable prices in your community um you could through like discount cards or, or independents that were you know would do um fair prices um but with a model like a cost plus that offers fair and transparent pricing in the community and that can get you same day next day delivery um will always win out over a mail order pharmacy that's a great explanation. I love it. You've got me excited about it. I've got to find one of these around me. All right. Uh, so <laughs> what do you think? Is there potential for this concept to grow into um, other spaces outside of Pittsburgh? Um, and if so, what do you think is needed to sustain and spread this cost plus model to other pharmacies? Definitely think it can grow. You know, um, already uh, there's been you know, Freedom Pharmacy out of Ohio, Access Prime Pharmacy out of Oregon, one in Arizona that will be open open shortly. Um, there's Pharmacy Club out of South Carolina. Uh, there's Beargrass Gift and Drug out of uh, Montana. All these pharmacies are doing, you know, they're, they're community pharmacy uh, that are offering fair and transparent prices, either in a wholesale model, like a membership wholesale model or a cost plus model. And, you know, they already are open and, and operating. So definitely think it can grow. Uh, what's really needed is for more, public policy, patient understanding of the idea of these products are just best not through insurance. We need, we really need to be pushing for a lot of this being bought and sold in an open, transparent marketplace, because what that'll do is it'll allow, and that that can be controversial because, you know, a lot of people view that as a race to the bottom. Whenever, whenever, whenever I say that it's not, it's most definitely not a race to the bottom uh, because if it were a race to the bottom, the pharmacies that accept negative reimbursement on brand drugs already have won. They're accepting losses. Um, what cost plus does is it sets a floor. It says, you know, for my value, for my service, my time, I, on every single prescription, I make $10. Now, if Walmart wants to undercut that and say, you know, that we're going to do cost plus, but on every prescription we'll do $8 or you know, $5. That's, you know, that's fine. But just like, um, just like back to the oil change analogy, we do have the Jiffy Lubes of the world. We do have, you know, the Valvolines of the world. That doesn't, we, but we've not lost all the small independent mechanics and oil, oil, you know, places that will change your oil for you. Is actually a, still a very thriving marketplace. And what it does is just say, hey, you're getting paid for the service and the value that you bring to the patient, and you're not making money off the drug. That literally is the same, you know. Yes, Walmart does same, sell the same levothyroxine that I sell. <laughs> like, it's, there's no difference. So we can't put value on the, the product itself. That's why all the value has to be tied to the service because I cannot claim any superiority of my levothyroxine over Walmart's. 
What I can claim superiority of is that dispensing product, that's care that I provide, that education that I provide. That's where we should price our, 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 our service. Great. So if we had students uh, or pharmacist listeners here today that were interested in um, doing something like this in your community or just getting started learning more, where would you st- suggest they start? Yeah, so podcasts are great. So <laughs> yeah, so they must have made it through this one, uh, but there's other ones out there to learn a lot more. Um, the, you know, state organizations are great. You know, that's where I got a lot of my networking and, and made a lot of connections through national organizations and CPA, um, you know, groups. So one of my favorite things to do is every Wednesday now, I just hang out with other pharmacists uh, and, and virtually across the country. And we just chat. So like creating like a, a group of people that like minded is is great way to, you know, build ideas and, and grow those ideas. Um, but also they can always reach out too. So, um, you know, we have uh, programs to help pharmacists develop their own cost plus models um, that we, we can work with them on. Students, you know, if they wanted to do a rotation, always reach out because we do take rotation students, things like that. So, yeah, um, you know, network is the, the key, the key. Great. Okay. And where can people go to specifically learn about what you guys are doing there at Blueberry Pharmacy, north of Pittsburgh? So yeah, our website is blueberryfarmacy.com. Uh, we're pretty active on social. Um, and uh, we also have Cost Plus Pharmacy Consulting. So for, for people interested in that, it's costplusrxconsulting.com. And then, you know, my um, email is just kyle at blueberryfarmacy.com. So they can reach out if they want to. Great. Well, Kyle, it's been a a pleasure to have you on the podcast. You've taught me a lot and you've got me excited about what this could look like um, in communities all around the U.S. So thanks for sharing your expertise and your time today. It's been very valuable to us. Most definitely. And thank you again for the uh, invitation. It's been it's been a lot of fun. Um, I have a question real quick. Yeah. What's up? Um, So I've so I don't work in. retail I, w- I work in a hospital mm-hmm. and one of the so one mm-hmm. of the things I've been doing a lot lately is medrec and when a patient comes into the ER um, most of them have very little information on what drugs they're taking so mm-hmm. 80% of our vision and our context when a patient comes in is looking at epic dispense report and seeing what um, what drugs insurance has filled for mm-hmm. within wow. the past within the past six months to a year yeah. and like most times, like there are a lot of Kroger's that just don't report to those resources at all. So when we find out the patient fills at a Kroger, we're like, oh no, this is about to be a nightmare. Cause I'm going to walk into that room. They're going to have no idea what they're taking. And I'm going to have to call their mm-hmm. mom or their caretaker or the Kroger most of the time and find out directly what they do. So I, I guess I'm saying since you're operating outside of insurance and PBMs, um, how do you interact with that system? If at all, that's a, that's a beautiful question. Great, great question. Um, yeah. Uh, so what, you know, our, our software kind of takes care of that for us. So we use Pioneer and they actually have turned on the switch to put data back for the purposes, not not to share with insurance companies, but so it will show up in like an Epic. So that's wow. done through the ShareScripts network. Awesome. And so they actually sh- share that data back. Um, my wife works at Mercy, um, UPMC Mercy, mm-hmm. and she's like so excited whenever she sees like a, a, a blueberry fill <laughs> <That's great. laughs> on a patient's profile. So I know that definitely helps. My, um, 
you know, I count, I, uh, I do push back a lot in the, um, with vendors and with the, the concepts of, of data sharing. Um, not to, I, I think that specific scenario is a great use of data, but a lot of my concerns are, are how it can be used in the incorrect way. Um, and so that's one thing I think we don't talk about enough in, in healthcare. Um, you know, one of my favorite examples is, you know, this claim-based approach to care can actually hurt patients. One of my favorite examples is there's a local far, uh, doctor group that has value-based contracts. And so they get paid better the more adherent their patients are or the more patients that have diabetes are on statins, which in theory is good, right? However, there was a patient um, who shared with me, she got a call from her doctor and said, the doctor said, well, you ha- why, aren't you, why aren't you using a normal pharmacy? And she's like, well, I am. And she's very blunt. She's very... You know, and uh, she's like, I am. They're like, well, what you mean by that is why aren't you like filling your your Torvastatin through your insurance? You know, um, she's like, I don't have to. I get a better price through Blueberry. She's like, well, you have to do it at least once a year. Uh, <laughs> like, she's like, I don't have to do anything. Um, and they're like, well, what if we fill it for you? What if we um, we'll we'll take care of the copay? We'll fill it for you through a local pharmacy here. And then we'll uh, mail it out to you. We'll take care of shipping, all that stuff. She's like, it's your money. You can do whatever you want to do. <laughs> um, and, and so this was a statin and diabetes. She has diabetes. They wanted to make sure she was on a statin, which she was. Um, but they wanted to make sure the insurance knew about it because they get incentive payments from the insurance company, right? Um, and so they fill it. They mail it to her. They call her two weeks later and they say, hey, did you take that statin yet? She's like, No. I had blueberry pharmacy statin. She has over a hundred percent compliance on her statin with me. So like, I'm not concerned. I think it's like 103%. Um, and so like she, she takes it and um, she's like, no, I didn't take it yet. Sitting on my counter. They're like, Good. We sent you the wrong patient's medication. Oh man. No way. So this, this is, this is claims based care. And that version of care is in some way better. And the eyes of insurance is better than the care we provide. And that's a story that I like to share because it's the idea that in some way, a lot of people think, oh, you're operating outside of the system. You're, you're hurting you know, care and whatnot. If anything, you know, the system is broken <laughs> and, and we're providing the best form of care, which is direct to the patient. And I, I, I really don't care if we're not contributing to a lot of these claim-based um, because I view it as all of like a way to help insurance companies <laughs> because they're often the ones that get the payment. If you flow, follow the flow of money, it's the insurance money. It's the insurance that benefits from all this data. Yep. And so anything that's sharing of in data with insurance companies, I'm fairly against because it's not like they incentivize us in any way to share it. They're just like, Hey, you're going rogue and you're not sharing that data back. It's like, well, I don't have incentive to you just use it to game, to game metrics and get more money. And so uh, I'm actually fairly against a lot of that data sharing just because I don't think we we fully understand what that means. If anything, you know, I can provide care. And so like, I don't need a PBM to tell me when to reach out and do an MTM. I just, you know, do an MTM. I don't need a <laughs> to reach out and say, hey, put this patient on a statin B. A pioneer can already tell me when a patient needs to be on a statin. I already know. And so a lot of that is just like, it's born out of poor care to begin with. And it's like, um, if, if you're a, you know, if you're already doing a lot of the stuff, you don't really need to be. But I will put the exception in there. I do want to be part of the system of if you go into hospital 
and they need access. I, I like I said, not I don't want to be not like I don't want to be part of that. This, I think that pharmacies and, and people patients should be know where that data is going, be okay with where that data is going, sign off on that. If they ever want to retract that, you know, I, I don't know if any of you are familiar with blockchain, but mm-hmm. big blockchain fan and so you know a lot of blockchain and healthcare can enable a lot of this where right now it's just free flowing of data patients don't know that and probably are completely okay with it going to their local health center but some may not be um but you know patients should know where their data is going should be able to turn off that data stream at any point should be whenever it's used for commercial gain should be incentivized um and get payment back for whenever uh, other people are making money off of all that stuff that is not currently happening um, that can happen through things like blockchain um, is definitely exciting and frustrating all at the same time. But great question. Great yeah, question. Great question awesome. Thank you. And I guess one last question, this should be yeah. really quick because I think you've hinted at it this whole time, but apart from um, stress and workflow, <clears throat> one of the biggest complaints I hear about my, fr- my friends, my fellow students working in pharmacy is that, the patients are just mean because your patients are so involved with their care and, and, um, and it's such a more intimate system. Are the patients nice? I believe that all humans are nice. There's a great book called humankind by Rutger Brigman, uh, something like that. And, um, I believe that all humans are inherently nice and, uh, we create systems and environments that allow them to not be. Right. And so if I'm very value driven and all I care about is getting another script and I don't actually care about that per- person's, then it's appropriate for them to react in the way they do. Right. And so I can't, I, I actually only can think of one patient that has been, and it's not even been a patient It's you know, they bought an over the counter product and they wanted to return it. And it just is like, no, the customer's not always right. <laughs> uh, that's, and actually it just happened, you know, to, two weeks ago. Um, but I, that's really the only time that a patient has been um, rude. Uh, and so I think it's, if you create an environment for patients, and I, I've seen this in, even in chains where, where a lot of times, you know, the pharmacist can really set the tone. And uh, if, if uh, we have a great pharmacist here part-time who spent time in a chain, and from my understanding, you know, no, no patients are really mean to him either, because it's just, you know, if you put out kindness, it often, um, you get kindness back. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. All right, all right, Kyle. I know you got other things to do, so we appreciate your time. Uh, thanks Definitely. again. And, uh, we'll be in touch. Awesome. Take care. Yep. Great meeting you both. Bye. Yep. Take care. You have been listening to Disrupt, a podcast from the Cedarville University Center for Pharmacy Innovation. If you enjoyed listening today, please subscribe and share this podcast with others. Thanks for listening.